All right, welcome to the latest episode of the Columbia Basin Conservative Institute podcast. Josh and Ken here, flying solo. It's been been a while since we've done one of these. Actually, we've just had such a good string of guests back to back to back, and and so we feel like we have a couple months worth of stuff to catch up on. So this is going to kind of just be a grab bag of different topics, and uh, we welcome people to. Uh, fast forward as as much or as little as you want, but uh, yeah, you you can almost hear the collective sigh of our small group of listeners <laughs> gearing up for either listening and trudging their way through this episode or just skipping it. Maybe these are some of people's favorites, just because this is where uh, we we go off the rails. But um, first off, so yeah, we have just a random assortment of topics. But first off, I, I do want to talk about. I'll say a highlight of. The month, the year, our lives, um, going to the dispatch event last Thursday in Bellevue. Yeah, it has to go birth of my kids, marriage, you know, this event, maybe graduating at some point. <laughs> and I, th- um, I think you need to reassess your priorities there. This this should be a little yeah, higher. No, but, I know. You're right. Um, You're right. Yeah, no, just the... the uh, conservative nerdery in us um i think just overall if you look at modern conservative royalty as far as pundits go or commentators authors uh columnists or whatever however you'd want to describe them but um i think jonah goldberg and kevin williamson both who work at the dispatch are right up there at the top of two of my favorites and uh i would have driven across the state to see one of them but they were both there and ken and i were both uh Excited to drive over there and see them and Brandy Cruz. Got to say hi to her and Deanna Martinez with the Mainstream Republicans. And so it was just a fantastic event. But it wasn't just that we got to go there and, you know, I I could fanboy and have them sign. I brought I brought nine books with me, but I, I only brought seven in with me because for whatever reason I thought nine was too many and I just left two behind. Um, but they were gracious enough to sign both of those and, um, well, sign all of them. Um, but the coolest part was not that we sat and talked or stood and talked to Jonah right at the very beginning, uh, sat and talked to Kevin for a few minutes. And then we sat in the front row right in front of them during the presentation. But by far the coolest point was the fact that we waited until the very end, just kept hanging out, kept hanging out. And then they were going to the hotel hotel bar, and we said, "Hey, can we join you?" And they said, "Yeah, of course." Yeah, I I don't know if at that point they were just too fatigued to care, um, <laughs> but perhaps against their better judgment, they let us hang out. And uh, you know, I I think I mean, there's a lot of reasons why uh, I was excited for the event, excited to meet them. There's a lot of reasons why I uh, appreciate them, look up to them, whatever. Um. But I think one of the best parts about the day for me personally was the fact that the type of people you expect them to be from their personas through podcasts, through interviews online, um, even you get a sense of kind of like the type of person they are through their writings. That's how they were just at the bar, uh, just hanging out, chatting, um, you know, at no point did I get a sense that they were looking down on either of us or, you know, it wasn't anything of the usual, um, quote unquote, famous <laughs> person interaction. Right. And, and who you see on television or again, through podcasts is kind of who it felt like we were just hanging out with at the bar, watching them chat about 
everything from, you know, conversations they had at work to uh, family life to, yeah, some political nerdery and stuff like that and everything in between. So that was, I mean, a bunch of highlights, a lot of highlights. I'm having to go into more of them, but uh, that was kind of one of the things that really stuck out to me the night was, um, yeah, no, uh, for all the reasons I look up to these guys now or in, in the podcast and writing space and all that is so neat to see that <laughs> that's who they are, you know, um, behind the curtain, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, there's that old adage, uh, never meet your heroes or something like that. But, uh, th- yeah, this, right, this right. didn't disappoint. I, um, you summed it up perfectly, but, um, I just really enjoyed the conversation. And even when we we're sitting there at the hotel bar with them, I was mostly just trying to shut up and just listen to them banter as opposed to like trying to, to weigh in or impress or say anything stupid. But, you know, a couple of times I'd like elbow Ken and say, this is awesome. But, um, so that, that was really enjoyable. We did chat with Jonah about bringing him out here at some point to the Tri-Cities to speak. And so, um, that, that's one of our goals. And I, you know, if, if I'm being honest, like Kevin's on my list and then, uh, Charles C.W. Cook as well, who I actually stood up and asked a question about. So that was fun, um, during the event. And then, um, Yuval Levin's another, which we've talked about him before. So yeah, in, in sort of my, and this is totally overused, <laughs> um, but in my Mount Rushmore of uh, potential speakers that I that I would love to have out here, those two were certainly are certainly on it, and so um, to be able to just literally hang out with them for a bit was uh, was really really cool. Yeah, and and okay, admittedly, when we talked about wanting them out here, if we started this organization, it was probably at least I'll be honest. For me, it was mostly just about the chance to meet them, and so now that that's been crossed off the sort of to do list, uh, I still want to have them out here, mostly just because. I think a number of folks in our community could use uh, this opportunity to hear, uh, you know, this sort of brand of conservatism, uh, and and not just articulate this brand of conservatism, but why it's important to sort of reignite. It. I mean, the, really, they do they'll do a much better better job of explaining the uh, reasoning behind this organization than you know even the two guys who. <laughs> started it and we were just chatting, having beers. Um, but yeah, and they touched on it a bit in the dispatch event and they've of course done it through countless podcasts of their own and, and writings they've had. Um, but yeah, I would, I would love to have those two, uh, Yaval, Charlie Cook, any one of them come out and sort of provide a, uh, uh, you know, kind of kicking off point for the type of conservatism we're, we're looking to defend and, and the type of conservatism we're looking to promote in the area again, uh, because I think there is, I mean, it, you know, we saw a pretty big appetite for that over in Bellevue, which I wouldn't say is, you know, the, the exactly the, the place you think of in the state when you think of red conservatism. Um, and so if, if we saw that kind of energy, that, that excitement uh, from folks all over the state willing to drive across there, um, I'd hope to get similar enthusiasm from a you know relatively R <laughs> uh, red leaning community like like the one we have out here, so um, yeah, would would absolutely love to get a chance to meet them again, but but more importantly, have them present the type of conservatism that we're looking to conserve. Yeah, and um, obviously, I mean, we met people that had driven from Portland and from the coast, and uh, you know, so people came from all over the state. So I I think if we were to have an event like that, I would hope to have a, a similar draw. But more importantly, like you said, it'd be to 
expose the people of the Tri-Cities and Columbia Basin to that brand of conservatism, as you said, which I, I think doesn't get as much of a hearing as just what you might call your mainstream Republicanism at this point, which I shouldn't say mainstream because that implies the organization, what your uh, just Republican as a brand, the Republican Party as sort of a stand-in for conservatism, which as we made it abundantly clear is the somewhat of the goal of your organization is to bifurcate those two things and really understand the difference and then try and push the Republican Party back towards those conservative principles. But um, yeah, the the Dispatch is a right-leaning news organization, or I guess you'd say maybe a um, news with a news and political commentary with conservative slant. So uh, it's something that I subscribe to. Jonah Goldberg was previously with National Review. I'm also a subscriber there, which that's a longstanding conservative publication started by William F. Buckley and um, continuing in that tradition. And so I support both those organizations, but the dispatch specifically was let's get away from the quick reaction, quick baity pop-up ads and, and any sort of um, online advertisement and really just give people thoughtful news and commentary. And um, Kevin Williamson followed him over there as well. And so I think it's worthwhile to check that out, the dispatch.com. And um, I'm sure I can get you a whoever may need one, a one, yeah. one month free trial or something like that. It's that so, time of year, a gift subscription. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, had a blast with that and we would uh, hope to bring them out here soon because as much as it's a goal of this organization to expound on that brand of conservatism, as you said, Ken, it, I, I think obviously as much as I try to absorb and regurgitate things from all sources, um, books and, and all manner of, uh, of media, but, um, to hear it straight from someone who can articulate it like no other, it would, would make all the difference. So, well, and has that fuller understanding of the, you know, historical different tinges of conservatism. They've been around for, uh, the number of familiar debates that we're seeing today that happened 20 years ago. Uh, that's, that's some of the, the areas where I've really appreciated their, viewpoint on is getting a chance to say oh yeah we've had this debate and it was pretty recent (laughs) yeah and if there's anyone who is listening to this podcast and you're conservative and you're not listening to the remnant uh with jonah goldberg then you're then you're doing it wrong you should be listening to him first um or of course we try to focus on more local and washington state stuff but i'd say that it's pretty safe to say that jonah's podcast the remnant is definitely an inspiration for us doing this so I, i don't know that this podcast would would have started or existed without the remnant, but um, that's a fantastic one. And then uh, Kevin Williamson used to be part of Mad Dogs and Englishmen, but I, I think uh, you can go find the archives of that if you really want to dig deep. But um, he has a separate one now that he does once a month, but then also he's part of the the Dispatch podca- podcasts that come out pretty regularly. So you can find all that. But I'll, I will say, and Kevin, um, Kevin Williamson, Ken and I agreed on this on the drive over that he is by far our favorite writer, I'd say. So um, as far as writing books, columns, you should subscribe to his weekly newsletter, The Wanderland. But uh, just go to the dispatch and read his stuff. Um, it's it's brilliant and funny and quick-witted. And I, I don't know how to describe it other than just it's it's flat-out genius. And uh, he Yeah, gets- and, and, and putting him on the mantle of, of 
favorite writer, I'd say, says more about him than it does about the phenomenal you know, dispatch community of writers that they have there. Because I've been pretty impressed with just about everything I've I've uh, consumed through that website. Uh, they do they do a fantastic job of not just not just having their incentives aligned correctly so that they don't get into the familiar act of uh, writing and quote unquote reporting to your audience, not, not the story, not the facts, but reporting it to, or the way that you interpret how your audience wants to read it. I, I don't get a sense that the dispatch ever does that. Um, but then, yeah, uh, making it, <laughs> making it easy to consume through some fantastic prose and, and just a, a world-class crew of thinkers and writers there that I'm grateful we have access to. Well, I, I'm sure people have enjoyed the, you know, 15 minutes of fawning there or whatever we are into now. But um, well, hey, yeah. hold on. I did just want to say one thing. because I was thinking about this uh, a little bit, too, and we can feel free, feel free to cut this. Um, but I'm trying to figure out this is not a, a, a brag moment by any means, but I've met some famous people and I usually do a pretty good job of not you know, being tight or weird or, yeah. or you know, kind of awestruck. I mean, I met Dick Buckus, and I and I was just a casual. I was going to hey, say, how you doing? Who, who's your the most famous person you've ever met? It's that. Are you going with yeah. Dick Buckus? D- oh, Dick Buckus! Are you kidding me? Hall of Fame, <laughs> <laughs> greatest linebacker to play the game. Uh, anyway, so yeah, that's probably my that's probably my number one uh, uh, famous person I met. But but when I met Jonah and Kevin, and it wasn't you know again they were. Incredible to talk with. They were just normal guys. Um, yeah, I couldn't figure out why <laughs> it felt so different. And I think it's because, and this isn't to say that the other folks I met were, you know, world-class garbage heaps, but um, I just so appreciated how uh, principally consistent they've been in the last few years. And you can't say that about a lot of people in or outside of politics these days. And so I think when it comes down to it is I'm just so kind of baffled by um, that aspect of their, you know, notoriety or persona or the the presentation they, they provided themselves online that I was kind of taken aback when I had a chance to meet them because <laughs> you almost forget that uh, folks like those two and a lot of the folks at Dispatch today taking all those arrows from different corners of, well, both political parties, uh, for simply just being consistent in their beliefs, their values, conservatism. Um, yeah, you kind of forget that they're just people who I'm sure uh, had really difficult days during that time. It wasn't as simple as just saying, oh yeah, I'm going to go at the height of it when you're losing money because the incentives aren't aligned to be principled. I'm sure Jonah wasn't sitting there when that first uh, arrow from Trump came in when he said he should get fired from NR, I'm sure he didn't sit there that day and go, oh, well, you know what? In a few years, I'm definitely going to start my own media company and make a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah. He, he had every incentive in the world, every reason in the world. I mean, just from a raw, you know, you think about why I go to my job uh, to turn around and say, okay, I'll just jump on the bandwagon and make a bunch of money and do the thing that's going to be the quick buck. Um, and so, yeah, because it took me a while to figure out why it just felt different. And I just have... I think I appreciated that aspect of their um, their work the last few years more than I maybe had recognized prior to that. Well, and it is funny to meet someone that I've been reading literally since college. So um, 
I yeah. had been reading Jonah Goldberg from my dorm room and I remember laughing at his stuff back then. And, um, yeah, so here we are, you know, 20 years later and, uh, to actually be standing there next to you and suddenly I look down the hall and here he's coming and I'm just like, that's Jonah, that's Jonah. And then he comes up to us. He's like, Hey there, Jonah Goldberg. It's like, yeah, I know you were, but, um, yeah. anyway, so, um, yeah, that, I, that was I'm personally that. surprised he didn't recognize me yeah. uh, for, you know, I, I don't know how, but, uh, because of all the, uh, instant messages and, and love letters you sent over the years. It's like, yeah, are you exactly. supposed to be 300 feet away from me or something? But, um, yeah. As I peel away my mustache. That's right. Um, so transitioning, even though, yeah, that, that was fun, but, um, transitioning, we've had a couple recent great events hosted by CBCI. Um, first off back in November, very, very fortunate and honored to have hosted Jamie Herrera Butler here. Um, she came over to visit the Tri-Cities, do some tours of the irrigation district and, um, you know, vineyards to discuss DNR lands and all that. And we were able, she had a radio hit with uh, 610 Kona. And um, she also came and joined us for a happy hour and spoke to our group. And um, that was fantastic. It was great to have her over here. And I'm fully supporting her in her campaign for uh, Commissioner of Public Lands. Uh, we, we didn't even get into the whole nonsense of uh, the third congressional district about how, you know, she had voted for impeachment and then the reactionary right-wing populist nonsense uh, crowd decided that that therefore means she is persona non grata, similar to the nonsense that Dan Newhouse has put up with. But, um, you know, she unfortunately did not survive a crowded primary and then um, populist nationalist Joe Kent promptly lost, but barely, he, yeah. he barely lost. Yeah. You know, but barely lost, barely lost. So that, that makes up for pissing away a seat that the Republicans had held for a dozen years and given it to the Democrats in a situation where we are at, have a razor thin majority. So, um, well done, well done, Joe Kent and other, other, well, they're just going to, use a very strong pejorative, but I'll just leave that. Well, and I think what, what upsets me most, especially about a seat like that, where it is a purple district, uh, she did a great job of not only advancing, we'll say conservative Republican policies when she could, uh, but representing her district over the years. And that's why she had been reelected comfortably. She was, was it fifth term? I, I think it was 12 years. I'd, I'd have to look, so. Yeah, so we'll wrong. just say a number of years. Um, and let's set aside whether or not you or I disagree or, or agree with or vote on impeachment. If you disagreed with it, and we'll just say for now that that's fine, I don't understand why you throw away a not only person who's shown that they can win that district, who agrees with you politically on probably 90% of the other issues, because I don't recall her uh, voting with the Democrats a number of other times. I think she was a pretty solidly Republican vote. And also someone who had established the relationships, proven that she can get things done. You look at someone like Dan Newhouse, who's chair of the Congressional Western Caucus. That isn't just handed to you first year on the job. He obtained that by building relationships, being a productive member, talking to colleagues, showing areas and levels of expertise needed to 
effectively do that job and effectively advance policies for his congressional district where we live. Uh, so yeah, I just, I will never understand the knee jerk reaction to vote out a member of Congress, legislature, whatever it might be, when you've agreed with them a vast, vast, vast majority of the time, they've shown that they're an effective, uh, an effective representative over a single vote. Even if that vote was really important to you, it's one vote. It's one issue. And yeah. And so I, I guess I question the logic of saying I disagreed with Jamie on a single vote. So now I'm going to happily watch a Democrat win that seat. And I guess we'll just see how many times uh, the folks who are angry about the impeachment vote are clapping for. Uh, oh, I yeah. lost her name. What is her name? Marie Glusenkamp Perez. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but yeah. All right. Well, we'll see how many times those folks are clapping for MGP. the new representation. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing, I mean, there's that aspect of it, which of course is just, it's a politics of rage where as soon as you have betrayed Donald Trump, it's, you're no longer a Republican in so you've declared that you're not a Republican, whereas you can vote however you want on like some sort of trade negotiation or something like that, where, um, you know, not that we do, that's all done through presidential decree these days. But um, the other thing that surprises me is the fact that Democrats would want to roll the dice there because you have someone who is productive at their job and you know, reasonably moderate in as far as both temperament and personal politics. And, um, and otherwise, you're going to end up with a Joe Kent, and they were pretty close to having that reality. So they could have just said, Hey, do we want to have, uh, we, we want to roll the dice to get a one seat that could be a ter- temporary two year seat, and then it could flip back to the Republicans? Or do you want to just play it safe and stick with the status quo and avoid the nonsense. Yeah, but the 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 what you're presenting assumes that the dysfunction and hyperpartisanship we see in the Republican Party is confined to the Republican Party. I think yeah, a lot of the issues that you see on one side are reflected on the other side in just different ways. Uh, we saw that with the speaker battle. If you were a you know just thinking logically about the well-being of the house congress given what's going on in the world and you're a you know purplish district democrat you would have voted for kevin mccarthy yeah and said you every got, single democrat had, voted to get rid of exactly him. i mean they knew what they had he had just worked with them on the cr uh relative to the other names except for maybe steve scalise that were thrown around right after he left he was an adult in the room I'm not going to say that Kevin McCarthy wasn't blatantly political and had a number yeah. of challenges that I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but I'm just saying if, if you were a Democrat in Congress and you were thinking about what is the quote unquote safe move here, it's to go with, I, I will say safe move, not politically, but from an institutional standpoint of what's going to be best for the running of Congress over the next two, two years or so, it would have been to go with, just stay with Kevin McCarthy, skip the fighting, skip all the nonsense especially given the challenges that were going on at that time. But no, every single one of them voted to oust him. And, and you also see them 
endorsing and at times even funding yep. extreme right-wing candidates all so they can run against them because they think they're uh, easier to be you know yeah i i know i know jonah loves to say the the burke quote example of the school of mankind and he will know no other but how many times do they have to lose and get burned by this strategy to stop doing it but it's worked several times i mean and that's the unfortunate thing is there's people like peter mayer in michigan who i was a big fan of first term congressman and he voted for impeachment ends up getting a, a, a nut job running against him in the primary. The Democrats fund and support him. He wins the primary and then promptly loses that former Republican seat to a Democrat. So the strategy worked there. And it worked in the third uh, congressional district as well here in Washington. So um, I don't know to what extent they were backing Joe Kent or anyone like that. But well, I, I will say recent memory serves that the number of conversations I had with Democratic friends uh, openly hoping for a Hillary-Trump matchup yeah. in 2016. Yeah, how'd that and work out they for weren't, you? they weren't writing him checks, but... Well, and that's the thing is because I, I think opposite to that because... So back in 2020, I wasn't supporting Trump in the sense that even though he's the he was the uh, incumbent Republican, I still wasn't supporting him, but I was actively rooting against Bernie Sanders. So I wasn't thinking, hey, um, just so the Republicans can, can hold on, let's get Bernie Sanders in there. And because uh, to me, that would be playing with fire because <laughs> you're putting Bernie Sanders that much closer to the presidency. So you know, I, I get the, the gamesmanship there, but I thoroughly reject it. And so it remains to be seen what's going to happen here in our congressional district if, um, you know, right now there's two candidates. Will the Democrats put someone up there and suddenly split that vote? I mean, I'm sure they will. Um, but they do it at their own peril. And again, not that it's their job to bail the Republican Party out, but do they want to bail their country out? Do they want to have what's best for it? Because go ahead and put up Doug White or some other mainstream Democrat even, and you are probably going to end up, I mean, if, if that's the scenario, and yeah. Jared Sussler somehow makes his way through the primary, Lord help us, you could end up with a Congressman Jared Sussler, and which is just laughable to say. Um and that would, and at some point, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> if I talk to Democrats, I'm to say, "Well, you got. I, I was trying to police my own side. Why didn't you do your part?" So, yeah. but yeah. you know, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. Well, and gamesmanship, sure. I know uh, uh, politics ain't beanbag, as they say, but don't prop up some of these extreme candidates, and then turn around and say democracy is on the line. Yeah. Right, right, right. The you know the future that, of our country is at exactly, stake. But exactly. we're gonna fund this guy because he sounds wacko. Yeah. Like, yeah, don't put yeah. him that much closer to power because um, I don't believe you at that point. But no, that's exactly right, and that that's the whole. I don't can't remember if we even talked about the whole speaker debacle, but the fact that you had a small group of Republicans from the Freedom Caucus, or is that the hell they call it these days? I don't know. The fact that you had them accusing Kevin McCarthy as, you know, playing too nicely with the Democrats, but then they single-handedly 
bound together with all the Democrats to, yeah. <laughs> to remove him from yeah. the speakership is just the uh, epitome of irony. But, um, you know, no one will, no one will balk at that. But, you know, we, we kind of transitioned in discussing Newhouse as well. But that was the other event we recently yeah. had is hosting an event for Dan and, you know, good gathering of community members to hear from Dan and support his campaign. And so, um, you know, back to back, we had two, uh, two of our candidates here running for our office. And um, I think we want to continue to bring more of that. And we have plans for January. We're going to try and pull something off before we make an announcement. We'll try and uh, see if we can pull it together. Yeah, I know that the, the event for Dan was great. And it was nice to see a, a, a good turnout. And yeah, I mean, and, and Dan brought up kind of what we've talked about. And one of the reasons we've appreciated Dan as a member of Congress is he brought up the importance of having uh, rational adults in the room. And I, if I remember right, he brought up, you know, some of the challenges that we've talked about here. And he's absolutely right. Uh, not just being an adult in the room, but the importance of experience and having um, the relationships and knowledge to do the job or not just show up and vote, but to do the job well and get some of those policy goals that he's been able to advance or move down the road because of all the work he's put in the last, has it really been 10 years? Oh, I think it's less than that. I want to say only. Oh, no, no. Yeah. If he's, if he's reelected, that'll be his fifth term, right? I think that's right. Yeah. But yeah, in one of the things that he had mentioned, you Mm -hmm. know, some of the questions he fielded were about progress in the appropriations bills and all that. And, he said, yeah, they're, they're behind. And um, the unfortunate thing is they haven't made any more progress because they switched the speakers, Speaker of the House. But, um, you know, one of the things that I'd, I'd read actually after the event with Dan was that this will be the least productive Congress in modern history because they've only passed into law 20 bills this entire session. And, um, like previously, so if you think about, well, Hey, you know, it's a divided government, but, um, you know, previously when Barack Obama was president and the Republicans were in control, I think they'd pass like 70 or something like that. So they're just flat out not getting anything done, which, you know, originally I thought, you know, the conservative in me wants to think like, Oh, good. They're, you know, those people in DC aren't screwing anything up. Good. Just don't do anything. Just, just stay there. Don't do anything. But when you have like appropriations bills, like basic appropriations that you haven't passed, that's a problem. It's it's one thing if it's like, all right, great, they didn't pass a whole new sweeping textbook worth of regulations that we have to absorb into our lives and the economy and they're just meddling into our affairs. That's one thing. But, you know, funding the military and, um, you know, funding or the basic tasks of the government to keep it functional that's a problem. And, you know, does it give us much hope to actually do anything about entitlements when they can't even like do the basics? Um, they can't even do the blocking and tackling and we're expecting them to run these, you know, complex, you know, read, uh, option and, uh, zone blitzes and things like that. So, um, it's, it's tough to be optimistic, but, um, the more people that we have in there, like Dan Newhouse, the more confident I feel. Um, you know, he's just one of 400 plus, um, but, uh, at least he's ours. So, uh, yeah. I, I, it would just, 
I don't know what I'd do if we had like an MTG or a Lauren Bobert or a Matt Gates. I would just be so um, disheartened to have a, an absolute clown representing us in Congress. And I, I use that term advisedly because I've had I've had congressional representatives they didn't like before. Like I lived in Seattle. I lived in Northern California. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I've, I've often not liked the people and um, to, to a great degree of consternation, but that doesn't mean that I thought they were unserious people. Whereas now, like, I don't know if maybe it's because I'm closer to it or <laughs> I just, uh, we've just reached a whole level, a whole nother level of ineptitude and just boorish, outlandish, crude behavior in the people that I just mentioned and Dan Newhouse's current opponent that um, I shudder to think what will happen. Look, I'm, I'm not even going to entertain the idea that uh, we'd have any of those individuals represent us or like-minded individuals because just I don't want to you know, put that bad juju magumbo out there. Um, but I, I did want to say just real quick that there was an important hint of optimism, not hint. I mean, you have to, he outright said it's a good thing. Um, he'd mentioned that speaker Johnson is returning. It seems like the house to regular order. And by that he's pushing, he's allowing committees to actually do the work that they're supposed to do, which is evaluate policy, debate it, advance it and then work it to the house floor through that instead of everything coming out of the speaker's office which has been you know the uh operating procedure for speakers i think the last well pelosi boehner and ryan kind of followed that model right and so um and i think mccarthy for however short time he lived in that office uh acted similarly and so yeah if if speaker johnson accomplishes nothing else than to return the house to regular order i think that'd be a great thing and, and i can only hope that future speakers do the same thing because that's where you're going to get not just better policy but i think healthier politics too yeah and so i uh i just hope that we can implore people to use wisdom in who they support and th there needs to be just more conversation about um and you know i think the the podcast that we had dan newhouse on to to discuss exactly that about actually seriously talking about the issues and like who do you want doing this um you know if you're <laughs> I think you used a plumbing analogy, but if if you're going in for surgery, do you want someone who has the experience and is serious, or do you want someone coming dressed in like Patch Adams? And I, I, it, it's right now. I don't, I don't get it. Like I think they're they're angry because the surgeon came in and told them something they didn't want to hear, and so they've got some other guys saying here, well, well, I'll do it for you, even though this guy basically got his degree out of a Cracker Jack box. Um, and actually, I meant that metaphorically, but actually I somewhat mean that literally as well. Um, but we can, I'll, I, I digress. 
But so we have, we have other things to talk about. I, that's the thing is like we we knew that coming into this we had nothing on the agenda, so we listed out like five or six things that we could talk about. And I said we're still only going to talk like two of them. So, um, but yeah. one thing I did want to at least touch on because and you know humor me here, Ken, but you can steer it as as quickly as you want. But um, we never did do a local election recap just because we had so many guests lined up. And, um, so, but I think that the election results in state of Washington specifically were, I, I, I'd say mixed, you know, starting from the West side, I would like some of the stuff I saw out of Seattle, getting rid of some of the people that have, uh, helped manifest the absolute chaos there. Yeah. In the, the, city. the quality of the replacement though is yet to be seen. True, true. But, you know, um, change was certainly warranted. So just the fact that Seattle residents were open to change for once instead of just maintaining the status quo and full speed ahead straight into the sphincter of hell, I, I, I didn't know what they were getting at. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say with that. But, um, but then, you know, going up north to Spokane, that was disappointing to see Nadine Woodward lose, although I can't say I was surprised. Um, and then locally, I uh, interesting results out of Richland because we saw essentially a clean sweep of the conservative candidates losing in the Richland school board race, but then pretty uh, pretty strong showing for the, you know, Republican conservative right-wing candidates, whatever you want to describe them, on the city council. And um, that sort of seems a little backward, but maybe yeah. backwards the wrong word, but it, it it's telling. Because if you look at the electorate, Richland, I would describe as a purplish city. It certainly leans um, Republican in that regard, but it, it's very much purple and there are parts that are pretty solidly blue, but, um, West Richland, which is part of the Richland school district is most assuredly not. That is very much a Republican red district. And so the fact that the Richland school board races, which include that part of West Richland went sweepingly to, uh, the, we just need to decide what terminology we're going to use, but the, the left-wing candidates, the progressives, however you want to describe them, but um, the fact that they cleaned up and then um, the Richland City Council kind of went the other way. I think it says a lot about what unfortunately transpired on the Richland School Board. And so I, I still support the idea of having conservatives on the school board. So I hope that we can get some candidates that are... And I, um, I'm not even trying to disparage the ones that were just on the ballot because um, I wasn't really following all that closely. But I think it was a little, unfortunately, a little too soon after the whole masking incident to come back yeah. and double down and say, here we are, we're the candidates for the Benton County Republican Party and what they did was right or however they were trying to phrase it. And they promptly got their butts kicked. So I think that's a clear message to hopefully the the party and candidates that just go in there do your job and don't be ideology don't be ideological about it yeah well and particularly when uh bulk of the other races around the community uh went 
kind of how you expect it with either incumbency leading the day or the quote unquote Republican candidate, even in nonpartisan races, taking the seat. Yeah, um, in Kennewick, in Pasco, like kind of all around. So really the yeah. the exception for the most part really was the Richland yeah. School Board. And I don't think you can point to partisan politics there by saying, well, Richland's left wing because city council. Yeah. So I think it's pretty clearly the electorate was not happy with the way the conservative candidates with the actions they took to, you know, defy the mask mandate. And, you know, I had a lot of, you know, anecdotal one-off conversations with people who are conservative and they just flat out said, well, they broke the law. Yeah. And it's hard to really disagree with that. I mean, unless you're, <laughs> unless you're one of them and you just want to say, well, the law is not a mandate or a mandate's not a law, but, um, anyway, yeah. but, um, so I, I think that, that if, if any exit polling was done, I'm pretty sure that's what it would come back as like, oh, well, I guess conservatives voted against the purported conservative candidates because they didn't want more of the same, like advocating for rule breaking and yeah. grandstanding, that sort of thing. So, um, and, and if, if any of you out there, the four or five of you listening, Hopefully it's fewer because this has been a pretty up and down podcast. Um, but for those of you listening, if you followed any of these races much closer than either Josh or I did or, or live in West Richland or, excuse me, or, or, or live in Richland and you have a different take, you know, feel free, write us, come on the podcast, whatever. We'd love to hear from you because, um, but yeah, from, from kind of the bird's eye view here, it does seem like that was probably the likely incident, which is they saw the nuttiness of the last few years from some of the choices made on the city count on the, uh, excuse me, school board and decided to vote against that, or at least just not participate in potentially going down that road again. Yeah. And that's the thing that I hope we can, um, I hope there are lessons learned that this is why as conservatives, we talk about incremental change in the due course of time, um, proper temperament, that sort of thing. Because I think that we, and I say we just loosely, meaning the right, got a hold of this school board in, in, um, Richland. And we're like, I think I've used this one before, but we're like a 12 year old who got a hold of our new first nudie magazine and didn't know what the hell to do with it. So we went nuts and we went way too far, made too many headlines. And instead of just quietly, instead of quietly shutting up and doing the job of putting parents first, it was all about grandstanding and different resolutions. And let's just make headlines and appease people on Facebook and get into shouting matches at school board meetings parents are a fantastic constituency and that is where the Republican party can make some headway. That's what they, they did great in the state of Virginia, for instance, that's where Glenn Youngkin swept in because the Democrats just had a horrible strategy there. Thanks to Terry McAuliffe. But, um, so I hope this is a lesson for other school boards in the area and that I hope a new batch of conservatives in the Richland school district are watching, planning to run in the future um, and we'll, uh, approach it with a level of 
statesmanship, I guess. Um, and just, <laughs> you know, maybe a little bit of decorum and uh, maybe see some success in that manner. One, I think a, a good way to sum this up just real quick is uh, because we haven't said this nearly enough on this podcast, but process matters. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Process matters. Uh, you could have the right policy. You could be right on all the facts. But if you go about accomplishing that goal the wrong way, it's not going to matter. So process process over outcomes. All right, Ken, I've been talking too much. Where, where do you want to take us? <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 since we just talked about election night, I think we have to mention the other, uh, major piece of news from election night, which happened over in my great city, Kennewick, um, bit of, bit of a surprise and, and it's, it's old news. And I'm sure a lot of our listener, listeners are already well aware of what happened. Former mayor Bill McKay suddenly resigned on election night, um, which left mayor pro tem Crawford to pick up the gavel and has been acting mayor since, I believe. Um, but the resignation, uh, at least publicly, came out of nowhere and followed a pretty lengthy investigation by the Kennewick Police Department in which it became clear that Bill McKay had um, solicited questionable acts while attending a massage parlor and i suppose all that listeners and i'm sure all of you they're, are they're all aware of it yeah i mean like yeah. <laughs> we're we're uh we're recapping old news here but yeah we at least gotta we at least want to address <clears throat> the elephant in the room i guess you call it. <laughs> um but yeah <clears throat> um yeah, no, but there, there's, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's plenty of past to go down about that, but you know, there, it's been well documented. But I, I think, as much as we'd love to stay here, and I'm sure there's a plethora of jokes about this being a seminal moment in politics and how we could, uh, you know, give him a hand for his his work in the city council and all that. But um, instead, we we do want to talk a little bit more about the politics side behind it because that that's the fun, interesting part, not just making sophomore jokes. But but you know that led to an opening on the city council, and you know Ken, I we had several chats about whether or not you're going to throw your hat in the ring there, and you you did. What can you tell us about that process? Um, yeah, so you know I said this during the interview, and I'll say it again. I was really excited to to see the number of quality applicants who put their name in to fill the vacancy there. Um, you know, as a fellow applicant, I of course wanted that number to be less, but as someone who lives in the city and is raising a family here, I'm excited to see so many folks jump up and, and want to serve and help in, in, in that way. And, and hopefully they look to serve in other ways too, by jumping on boards where they can and, and participating in, in city government that way. Um, yeah. So I, I thought along, I thought a lot about whether or not I wanted to, to bring this up, because I don't want it to, and I don't intend it to be sour grapes at all. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll I'll cut to the the ending part here, and um, say that I, I applied for the vacancy. I was not selected um, out of nineteen applicants, I believe. Um, the city council voted. Four to two to select Jason McShane. He's uh, currently and has worked at um, Kennewick Irrigation District for district for a number of years. 
Um, so bring some experience there. Uh, and, you know, in fairness to him, hat tip to Jason. He had a, uh, you know, frankly, a, a pretty solid interview. I, I watched it, did a great job. Um, you know, again, I can't speak much about his experience because I just don't know him, never met him, but I hope he does a fantastic job. And, and by all accounts, I think he's positioned well to to do good, to do to do just that. Um, now, hopefully all that throat clearing out of the way. <laughs> um, and again, I just want to reiterate, he did a better job than me at the interview. I'll admit that. Fantastic interview. I do want to say... I haven't watched this uh, or, or any of them, so I'll take your word for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, I should say, relative to the constraints of the interview, he did a fantastic job. And what I mean by that is, I was pretty disappointed with the process. Not only because a few years ago, I'd actually run for this seat. And so I know just how grueling and challenging of a process it is to run for any seat, let alone a citywide uh, at-large city council position where you are doing interviews, debates, you're getting your policy ideas out there. Uh, for me, I went and talked to, I knocked on 10,000 doors, talked to thousands of voters, um, perhaps says a lot about me that I lost <laughs> in those interactions. Um, but so, so, you know, I, and I, and I'm by no means am I, am I a unique candidate. That's largely what you do as a candidate. You go out and you meet with voters you talk to them. You learn about you learn about their ideas, what they what they're concerned about, how your policies and visions and principles and values align with what they're looking for in a city council member, and you earn that vote. The vacancy process was well short of that, and that doesn't even begin to do it justice at how just short it fell. I think in respecting the overall gravity of appointing someone to this position. It was uh, 19 applicants, which was great. It had a you know pretty comprehensive written portion to it, which I thought would have served well as an opportunity to, to cut the 19 applicants down to top 10, top 5. But then the interview process, which again, interview, I agree, that's fine. City Council should interview, the, interview for the position, was six minutes or six questions answered in just 10 minutes. And admit, okay, I'm an adult, I'm a person capable of making decisions. I could have chosen to approach those six questions and the time constraints differently. Um, and I, you know, I think that all six questions were fair questions. But again, you're talking about a seat on the city council. You're talking about filling a position, which normally requires months of talking with voters, of sp spelling out your ideas, your values, your policies cut down to just a 10 minute interview. Um, that was, I was beyond disappointed with that again, not just because I didn't get it. Jason did a fantastic job. A lot of great people applied. I'm in no way disappointed with the selection. Cause I think he's going to do a good job. I am beyond disappointed with the just absurdity of the lack of seriousness that 10 minutes gives a city council, a, a city, an applicant to be on the city council, a chance to accurately and fully articulate their vision, their ideas, their principles, their values, let alone let's let the city council, the current members fully evaluate the worthiness of that person. And that very well may have been, you could have given us an hour long interview process that could have very well may have been Jason and it probably would have been, but I just, I cannot begin. And I, I know I'm going along here, but I just cannot begin to express 
how disappointed myself as an applicant, but also myself as, again, someone who lives in this city, who's raising a family here, how disappointed I am with the absurdity of that process. Uh, you know, there should have been, I thought, multiple rounds of interviews. Take the 19, cut it to 10, cut it to 5, cut it to 2. You're, you're, no one says it has to be done in a day. And I get it. It, it takes up time. It, yeah, it takes up time to interview folks. I understand that. But at the same time, it's, it's not, you're not filling a position for Paperboy. I expressed my surprise with that as well. I kind of figured that, hey, they'd look at the resumes, whittle it down, and then um, bring in, you know, top five for, for longer form interviews. And I understand if it's a public process, you may have to bring everyone in, in which case, fine, bring everyone in, but then bring them back for a second round. And what I would equate it to is I've been part of the hiring process more times than I can remember in like private industry. Never once have I been part of a hiring decision that was like 10 minutes long. And yeah. that that's to hire people in the organization. The higher up you go, in this case being management on a city council, that should take days, 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 days of, of different interviews. So um, I've been on panel interviews, one-on-ones, and cycling through all sorts of different variations, but never 10 minutes. Um, and never have I interviewed 19 people for a position either. That's where you, you screen <laughs> uh, you screen resumes, and then you, have, uh, you do a phone interview, and then you decide to bring in the the candidates that you like from the phone interview and you have them meet different people and do panels and so this is a public um public position i get it's going to be different and the only thing that i could think is that maybe there's more politicking happening behind closed doors in which case i'm okay with that but then why the charade of having a meeting that started at what 7 30 in the morning and went until the early afternoon because you have 19 people going for 10 minutes what plus a two-minute closing so you know add another yeah and we know that well because uh we had to leave right yeah. seattle at 4 a.m so that i could make it back for the interview that's right uh, and which... i the night before i i was not holding back drinking with jonah and kevin because we had to get up at four <laughs> in the morning i was like that's a problem for future josh and ken so yeah. Um, but no, I'm, I'm glad you applied though. Um, I think that was worthwhile exercise and I, we wish Mr. McShane well, but I think point, point well taken and point well, um, described that it, it needs to be more thorough process when you're appointing someone to a leadership position. So, um, yeah, to, to be able to, express to the public that you've done your due diligence in a 10 minute interview seems as you said it seems counter to the idea that what the the amount of scrutiny that the voters would put someone through um and you know certainly once you have been appointed to a position that is an enormous advantage come the next election so yeah um, absolutely if uh, if assuming that um, he decides to run for a re-election, he'll certainly be the favorite, but um, we'll see. Yeah, and I, I just want to read at that point because you made you brought it up and it was a good example. Um, you know, been on the hiring side, been on, of course, a number of times as the applicant. And even in lower-end positions, we'll say, 
I've had multiple rounds of interviews. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, I feel like, I feel like, and when I watered plants at Lowe's, I think that's the only application process which remotely came close to um, matching the the speed and seriousness of this last one, which was I applied and I think I had, in fact, I think the interview for Lowe's, for watering plants at Lowe's uh, was longer than this one. <laughs> and so all others, all others since that job have been, of course, the written application with the resume and cover letter and then multiple rounds of interviews. I've been given tests. I, you know, you, it's part of the hiring process because you want to make sure not only is it a good fit for the team, but is it a good fit for the position, all those things you want to check out the box, right? That you just simply cannot evaluate in any professional position in 10 minutes. And I'm not saying that we should have had every applicant go through the same sort of grueling process as a uh, Supreme Court, United States uh, Supreme Court justice nominee. But um, yeah, I think either multiple rounds, a little longer, would have been more reflective to the seriousness of of the appointment process or the, the appointment. I, I, I guess I could ask, we've had, what, two, maybe even three presidential debates since our last one-on-one uh, -on -one, or at least the last time we discussed presidential debates and including one even, <laughs> I guess you shouldn't call it that, but a debate between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom, which I only, I, I think I watched a couple seconds of yeah, highlights. I, did, I, I didn't catch much of that one. Watch it, but any thoughts on the presidential race or those debates? Yeah, um, I think just more that once again, debates don't really matter, except for maybe a funding, a fundraising bump that you you maybe have gotten by you. I mean, Nikki Haley, I think, was able to grab some of that after the second debate. Um, the third debate was probably her worst, but even then, uh, I don't think it really made a big difference. And in fact, most of the polls show it didn't. Um, perhaps the biggest news was Nikki Haley's jump in New Hampshire. Um, and I, you know, aside from it'd be nice to see an actual primary race. Um, and I'd, I'd like it to be, if it has to be someone, I'd like it to be Nikki Haley versus Trump would be a fun, fun matchup to watch. I just, I don't understand why either, um, Christie is still in it. Certainly not him, but I also, DeSantis' best, best day on the campaign trail was the day before he announced. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see, I mean, a pathway for him, but also I don't understand the purpose of his candidacy. I think Nikki Haley has drawn a clear line of the um, path that she's identified and is running for. Um, I think DeSantis is the example of what happens when a politician runs not because they have a clear, coherent vision of what they'll do in the executive office or in that office, but because they like the way the title sounded. Um, he's contradicted himself more times than not. The foreign policy answers he's given at the early part of his campaign relative to now look completely different. And, you know, maybe because now he's being more authentic, at least I'd hope that's the reason. Um, but yeah, if every one of your answers is just workshop through a bunch of consultants and here's the answer I'd give if I didn't want to make everybody mad, you're not going to, that's not going to go anywhere. I mean, especially in a presidential campaign. Yeah. I can't say that I find his 
rhetoric inspiring like just the, the memorized one-liners there's a new sheriff in town like that stuff it's like so corny but um I, at this point i i don't know i mean it trumps the presumed nominee which is just a joke um i find vivek beyond irritating to the point where uh, yeah as much as that is I, I i don't want to watch any more debates where he's there just because i find him so irritating and I, I, I mean, Christy put it best. He's like chat GPT, GOP presidential candidate. And I enjoy watching. He's like chat GPT. If a QAnon supporter was sitting there typing in the questions, looking for the prompts to be returned. Right. I, didn't he go on? Was it the third debate where he yeah. basically said he believes uh, every jet, conspiracy jet fuel, yeah. jet fuel doesn't melt steel. He just went every conspiracy theory possible. Yeah. But I I don't intend to watch anymore just because I don't want to watch him. And so if mm-hmm. it, they're not even meaningful at this point unless something dramatically changes, which Chris Christie, I think, made some solid points in the last one that until, until Nikki and Ron are going to... Feels weird talking about them in the first with their first names, but yeah. until um, Haley and DeSantis are actually going to go after Trump by name and directly, then there's no point in any of this. They're just vying for second place. And so I think Vivek's obviously trying to suck up to Trump to get in a cabinet position, which I'm, I don't know, whatever. That's just do, do you think, crash and burn. My, my last question here, because we can end up to this, I'm just curious. Do you think, because he's, what, 43 or something, he's super young, is his career uh on the national stage over after this because the last debate the only moment i remember is when chris christie basically said you know you didn't answer the question again you could actually watch desantis realize like real time oh yeah i don't actually have an answer because what i'm saying was prepared for me super smart guy he can memorize maybe he has an eidetic uh, eidetic memory he just memorized everything he reads and so all the prompts and answers his consultants gave him. He just had memorized and ready to go. But the minute you were asked for, you know, beyond just surface level one-liners, uh, he didn't have... And, and the sad part about it is, I'm sure he has an actual coherent policy vision somewhere in his brain on all these issues. But he's so afraid of actually running with what he believes that he's just floundering and going nowhere. And it's been not a fan of DeSantis. I don't like everything he's done in Florida, but all the things that he's done in Florida that I've not, that I've not liked, I think was, was what happens when a guy wants to be liked by folks online, wants to be a yeah. uh, president someday because he likes the title because prior to that point, prior to all his attention, he was rocking it. He was a great conservative governor who was making wonderful conservative choices. And it just, yeah, it's just been downhill since the moment he announced because I, I don't even know if he wants to be running. I yeah, I think his, I think his campaign strategy just stunk from the get go. Of I'm just going to try and out Trump Trump without actually having to go after the negatives about Donald Trump, and so he started going down that path and started turning off people 
more than he was attracting them because he turned off people, but then the people who would be receptive to his, to his message were already um, glommed on to Donald Trump. But um, I, you know, I, I could see a, if Haley were to take off with it, I could see a Haley DeSantis ticket being um, successful. I don't necessarily think I, I don't necessarily think that DeSantis would want to settle for a vice presidency. So um, I don't know. It remains to be seen, but yeah, um, I don't think you, you leave being governor of a major state to become someone who has, you know, zero power. Right. And unless you're thinking, Hey, this sets me up for eight years from now as the de facto, which, which I think it would be. Um, if, theoretically Haley were to win and then run for re-election and then you're running after that but that that's a lot of big ifs that got to happen in the in the meantime but I think it's all all for naught at this point because we're gonna we're gonna end up with Trump versus Biden and short of an act of God yeah and not that uh DeSantis is listening to this or anybody associated with his orbit but uh just caution to those looking to partly the vice presidency and to the you know number one spot yeah what george h was the last one to do it straight from the vp spot and that was a while ago and it took it took joe uh biden (laughs) four years out of the office to to snag it back so i he'd be better served by and he's a when he's not pandering he's a phenomenal governor who could really do some great things for that state and would be a could potentially be a great example for every other conservative governors to look at around the state. But so long as he prioritizes the attention over the policy and governing, I think we're going to see more of the same. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll say at, to sum it up though, as much as DeSantis has done things that irritate me or just have been questionable, um, strategically and even just almost morally, just because he's clearly just doing it to pander and I can't stand that stuff. But I think he could be, if the Trump people would just get over Donald Trump, just let it go, let it go, let, let the idea of Donald Trump returning go, I would settle for Ron DeSantis. It could, if that could be our, if that could be our consensus candidate, um, you know, I'm not going to yeah. get, obviously my dream candidates aren't even in the race, but, um, even of, of who's remaining, if you were to say like, Hey, sorry, you don't get Nikki Haley. You don't, you don't even get Chris Christie. Um, you get Ron DeSantis. I'll take, okay, I'll take that trade. If you let go of Donald Trump, we got DeSantis. Until Ben Sass makes the Eisenhower play, we're just going to have to continue settling. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, um. Thanks for thanks for joining us on this journey. We know that if uh, you stuck with us this long, then you're you're a a saint and uh, you have nothing else to do. But one thing we should recommend, which we should have recommended at the very very beginning of this, is you know Ken and I discussed quite a bit in our I was going to say our trip back and forth from from Bellevue, but only the one way because I slept the entire way back. Um, <laughs> But uh, listen to your podcast at a higher rate of speed. Go to your player. I I go from like 1.2 to 1.4. Ken is a maniac and goes like full two speed, you said. I tried that yeah. and that is like listening to the, the chipmunks. So I, I can't do it. 
but you know, ease your way in, you know, start at 1.1, 1.2 speed, and then, you know, you can bust your way through podcasts and then also trim the silence because I have this annoying speech pattern where I pause frequently between words. It'll clean that up and I'll, I'll sound like a genius. So please do try listening to your podcast at 1.2 speed with the silence trimmed. I'd highly recommend giving two speed uh, a shot, especially on this episode. It may not be for you, but if you want to try it out, try it on this one. All right. Well, um, anyway, we are looking forward to having more guests. We have a great list still. Uh, we've, just continue to be um, very thankful for the just receptivity that we have from everyone we reach out to. And so we have uh, more guests lined up and we will talk to you soon. 